Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of Proceeding Magazine. Proceedings. (laughs) Proceeding. That's a different magazine. Hello, Bill. How are you? Ward, great. Great. It's good to be here. It's a weird day here. We always start out by talking about the weather. We do. It's gray and dreary and about 55 degrees outside. Yeah, we had the one of the wettest Mays on record in Annapolis yeah. in the D.C. area, and June is starting off It's uh, like we're similarly. in London. Yeah, it's like we're in London. Or the British or, Naval Institute. Or the old Seattle before global warming. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so what's going on in, in the, the world? So the, the midshipmen are with us again. Uh, so the last time we did the podcast was with Admiral Mullen uh, two weeks ago. Last week we were, we were off. Um, and this week we're going to do two podcasts. Uh, and uh, our midshipmen interns are here with us again today. We've got uh, one of them is uh, the cameraman for Facebook Live. Uh, and um, yeah, what else is going on? The, it's the, a full-up uh, production team here. The, the summit, the summit in Singapore for uh, U.S. North Korea denuclearization, etc., yep. uh, is very much uh, uh, on everybody's mind. Uh, you know, we'll we'll see how this goes between President Trump and uh, Kim Jong Un as they meet in uh, like tonight. Seven or eight hours, seven or eight hours from now, uh, on the east coast of U.S. uh, Have you ever been to Singapore? I have not. That was my second port call in the Navy. In yeah, in the Navy, um, aboard the USS Independence, we had a surprise, which is an East Coast carrier. Um, We got a surprise uh, port visit laid on us. We were in the North Arabian Sea. This is before the idea of going into the Gulf proper. Before Desert Storm, you wouldn't have gone into the Gulf. That was unheard of. Right, right. I you remember know, that, that. After that, yeah, it became, yeah. you know, de rigueur. But uh, so we we're in the North Arabian Sea intercepting Iranian P-3s and uh, Soviet AN-22s on their way to uh, to Karachi. And, uh, you know, it's pretty, pretty amazing stuff for a brand new Lieutenant JG on my first deployment after going through the ditch for the first time. Um, and... Uh, I think Admiral Foley was 7th Fleet at the time, and he came aboard because we were, this is before there was a 5th Fleet, so we were in 7th Fleet AOR. You're dating yourself. I Very much. That's part of the fun here, right? And and so um, he goes, hey, you guys want to go to Singapore for New Year's? And uh, sure. So it was a, you know, I want to say five-day transit, you know, through the Straits of Malacca and all these other exotic places. And as an East Coast sailor, it's something... uh, you know, it was a miraculous experience. So we got to to Singapore, and uh, we stayed at the Goodwood Hotel. That's where the squadron VF-32 had our admin. And it's a remarkable city, uh, very clean, um, very few f- places for sailors to get into sort of trouble. It's not, not you know— Not your typical it's not, uh, sailor city. Yeah, right? it's not your typical what you would think of, uh, um, like a long apo or something. Right. Uh, restaurants were fantastic, and, uh, you know, everybody went to raffles for the— Singapore sling and uh, all that sort of stuff, but uh, a lot of fun, you know, so that's uh, when you, you know, my, my touch point to the summit is I've actually been to Singapore. Of course, uh, we had that uh, crisis with the American kid that got caught doing something bad and he, oh, was, right. it he was, was caned. Was caned. And, yes, I remember that. Yeah, so that's how the city stays so clean yeah. uh, and no graffiti yeah. is they're pretty hard on uh on you know petty crime petty crime right yeah and uh and uh, vandalism and that sort of thing so uh that was uh you know transparent to us we didn't see it all i know is it was a very clean city with awesome restaurants 
um, in a pretty decent anchorage. It was pretty close to fleet landing, so we didn't have to, you know, do small boat ops for hours and hours in between. So, uh, so I yeah. have one other thing to mention before we go to today's guest, who uh, is a uh, proceedings author for with the uh, the June issue of Proceedings. But over the weekend, uh, on Friday, we got an article by a uh, Navy captain, uh, Adam Acock, who is a professor or uh, you know on the faculty of the Naval War College. Uh, and Adam was writing uh, about the Singapore summit and about the long game, the long strategy that China and North Korea are playing. Um, we published it quickly on the blog uh, in its full form, uh, 2,000 or so words on Friday, and then we uh, we tightened it up over the weekend. We published it under a slightly different uh, heading this morning on Proceedings Today. Uh, and so the article, I, I commend it to everybody. Uh, it is by Captain Adam Acock called Singapore Summit, uh, U.S. Beware the Trap. And, uh, you know, he, he's talking about, uh, he, he used, references the uh, Chinese board game Weichi, or called, also called Go or Igo in Japanese, uh, which is a strategy game. It's an extremely complicated game. Uh, game. You know, professional games can take 16 hours or longer. Uh, and and he's, he thinks that uh, China and North Korea are colluding on this uh, nuclear weapons program and and are playing a long game against the U.S. Uh, of strategy in the Western Pacific. So interesting piece uh, and very timely going into the uh, summit that starts uh, tomorrow, Singapore time, uh, or today, Singapore time, uh, later tonight, uh, East Coast time. So uh, with that, we'll... we'll well, but go, Before we yeah, go to go our ahead. guests, because you mentioned content, yep. um, and we mentioned our mids, we would draw the listeners' attention to... Uh, the content our mids are creating on a regular basis here. Um, Massimo just posted this thing about dog fighting. Um, Hannah posted uh, a, a cool post about the history of nurses. Um, and these are listicles, photo essays. They're, they're kind of doing the, they've become our de facto digital content team, uh, posting content between our regular battle rhythm um, and doing all the right research and all kinds of stuff. So we draw the audience's attention to uh, the stuff that our interns are creating uh, as well. And most so of that's that being out. created on the Naval Institute blog. Yeah, it's on the history blog and the USNI blog primarily. Yeah. So so check that out. And okay. also they're doing some stuff direct to the Facebook page um, and uh, on our, our Twitter page as well. So uh, look for that in the weeks to come. Awesome. Very exciting and very cool stuff. Awesome. Yeah. Okay, so on to our guest today. So we have on the line from Newport, uh, another Naval War College uh, author, we have uh, Professor James Holmes, who in the June issue of Proceedings, uh, starting on page 26-27, the article is called Visualize Chinese Sea Power. Uh, and I'll just read the deck or the, uh, the initial read-in here. As China has built its naval power, it has relied on a variety of ideas, old and new, eastern and western. For U.S. military leaders seeking to understand China's naval aspirations, certain images can bring the strategy into focus. Uh, so, Jim, welcome from Newport. I hope you're having better weather up there than we're having uh, here in Annapolis. How are things up there? Hey, guys. Thanks. It's, uh, it actually looks great. I'm just, I'm just looking out my uh, window across the Narragansett Bay and watching the, uh, the, the uh, sailing vessel Oliver Hazard Perry, which is Rhode Island's latest, uh, latest uh, effort in this area, cruise north towards Providence. Uh, pretty, a pretty nice day on the Narragansett Bay. 
What, what kind of ship is that? What what sort of vessel is that? Uh, it's a, I think it's about a tw- about 2015 uh, vintage. It's a, a private foundation that uh, went out and got resources and built this thing. They run uh, training cruises, uh, fundraising things, and so they they basically are just trying to, uh, I guess, reawaken the American people to to the age of sail and what that was like. It's it. I would just I just glanced at the website. They claim to be, and I'm sure that I'm sure this is true. The first uh, full uh, full rigged sailing vessel built in the United States in in a century, literally. So kind of kind of a neat thing here, right on the bay. Amazing. Well, of course, uh, Newport is the second greatest sailing town on the East Coast. Yeah. Um, so uh, that, that's very exciting. <laughs> second to Annapolis. I'm looking out the window at a YP. <laughs> on the Severn. On the Severn, yeah. All right. Well, you know, I mean, I'd say for a, for a Naval Institute audience, to, Becca, Bill, I think you and I must be uh, you and I must be uh, contemporaries almost exactly, judging from uh, from your uh, sea stories you were telling at the beginning. But uh, back in those days, those, those YPs were here as far as uh, surface warfare training. So. That's right. right. So they may be there say, again. We certainly, we certainly could stand to have a squadron back up here again. I don't don't begrudge it to the midshipmen at all because they need it as well. But, uh, boy, I tell you what, uh, we, I sure would uh, think that would be a great addition to our naval buildup. Well, it, it may happen. We've had this discussion with uh, our good friend Kevin Iyer and others. Uh, so stand by. You, you may get your yeah, wish so. may come true here. So, so Jim, uh, jumping into your article, visualize Chinese sea power. Uh, just just take us through kind of the thirty thousand foot view, uh, the the major points of your of your article. Okay, thanks. Yeah, I mean, actually the. Just I should probably just clarify right before I start on the when when I go through all these I, these faces I, I started off calling the piece faces of Chinese sea power just because that's what that's what it seemed like we were talking about you could put a bunch of different faces on various aspects of Chinese maritime strategy so these are not necessarily people whom uh, to the Chinese quote when they talk among themselves about the maritime strategy some of them are I mean Mahan our, our second president at the War College is uh, is a fixture in Chinese strategic commentary but in other cases I picked for example Teddy Roosevelt. As uh, not so not so much as something body that they look at directly, but as a way to convey that idea. He helps us describe something as something about Chinese maritime strategy. So it's a bit of a it's a bit of a free form approach in that sense. So that, that just so that would just be sort of a, a prefix to what I was what I'm what I'm talking about. As far as the as far as the the broad overview, it originated uh, for a for a briefing I did to CNO last fall, and I, the way I the way I uh, conceived of it was. Uh, I was going back to uh, what was that? Two, maybe two years ago, when CNO uh, t- tried to tried to forbid the use of the term access denial, access denial area denial. That right. was A two A D was A two A D. Yeah, he said no more A two A D. And the re- and the reason he gave from that is that if you look at if, if you look at any of the annual uh, Pentagon reports on Chinese uh, military power, there's always going to be there's always going to be one of those maps of continental China ringed by missile range rings, basically depicting the ranges of missiles uh, in place along the Chinese shore line out rippling out from China's shorelines the reason he gave is, is he he thought that we were conveying a false impression with those maps that that was sort of an impenetrable shield against US military action as far as the Pacific Fleet coming from Hawaii or the West Coast or whatever and so in a, in a very real sense I thought about this article as a way to cl- to, to clarify what he means I think he I think the, the Chinese certainly don't think that they can keep us out of the Western Pacific altogether, and I think that's the point that CNO was trying to trying to convey as well, and and basically keep us from getting into a premature defeatism vis-a-vis the Chinese uh, as we look at their uh, maritime strategy shape up. So that's uh, that's that's sort of where I was coming from, and I just went through various aspects. Uh, the I, I suppose if you wanted to to break the break the piece down in very simple terms, I'm basically arguing that uh, if China can can defend at home with 
uh, with shore-based missiles, with submarines, uh, uh, diesel submarines, with uh, surface patrol craft, and all those sorts of things. If it can if it can hold off the U.S. Uh, in the Western Pacific, that essentially frees up the uh, part or all of the into, of the Chinese Navy's surface fleet to go off and do expeditionary things, such as uh, uh, establish a presence in the Indian Ocean, go to the Mediterranean, or whatever the case may be. So, in a sense, all those access denial things are, are the defensive the, the defenses whereby they can manage events in the Western Pacific, so that you can make that surface fleet into into more of an expeditionary fleet and send it out to do th- great things uh, and fulfill the purposes that China has in mind. For for it. Not saying they're there yet, not, yet next necessarily. In fact, I, th- I would describe these as a, as a metric that we can hold up and try to judge their progress. But I think that's the basic vision. Well, when you talk about uh, access denial, you use the analogy of crumple zones. Uh, what specifically uh, does that refer to? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's literally an effort to convey a, to convey a, a, a pretty uh, com- uh, not, not an exceptionally complex idea, but it's sort of a big strategic idea using an everyday, everyday metaphor. If you think about, I mean, if you when you go get in your car this afternoon, I mean, if you look ahead of you and behind you, you'll see the engine compartment and the trunk behind you. Uh, the engine compartment ahead of you, rather, and the, and the trunk behind you. Those are those are not uh, those are not rigid uh, rigid structural features that are supposed to keep your car entirely from from harm when you have a collision. What they are designed to do is absorb the shock of a shock of a collision and basically co- co- uh, collapse gradually, so that and ultimately you're going to lose your engine or your, your your whatever's in your trunk. But you, if if the concept keeps it works out correctly, then you safeguard what you care about most, which is the passenger sitting in the cabin. So if you transpose that uh, that sort of everyday logic to and look at Chinese maritime strategy, that's I, I think that is what they sort of what they're trying to do in the in the Western Pacific. Throw out a barrier, so throw out a collapsible barrier that will uh, that will collapse in a controlled uh, way in the face of a U.S. Pacific fleet offensive across the Pacific, and uh, hopefully keep uh, keep safe what China wants to keep safe, which is the waters within the first island chain that runs from Japan down through Taiwan and the Philippines, a buffer to the east of that, and thus grant uh, grant China the time the, the time and the liberty to do what it thinks it needs to do before the United States can even step in and even get into the battle zone. So it's a very very similar idea. Put out there a barrier that will that will collapse in a controlled way, take the energy out of that, to take the energy out of that American offensive and ultimately uh, uh, grant China a, a multitude of options. So you mentioned a couple of what you call the five faces of Chinese sea power uh, in uh, when you first were talking about uh, the overview of your article. So you said Mao, I, mean, I don't know if you said Mao, but you said Mahan and Roosevelt. Also, you have Mao, is it Aub? How do you pronounce uh, uh, A-U-B-E? Oh, Admiral Ob. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The Ob- Admiral. yeah. yeah. Somebody and, who's a little bit less uh, familiar. Yeah. Yeah, I've never heard of. And then Clausewitz, and and so you mentioned uh, in in a paragraph called Clausewitz goes to sea in the middle middle of the article that Clausewitz teaches there are three ways to prevail in wartime. To oversimplify, one can smash, overawe, or bankrupt a foe. So, how do the Chinese intend to do any one of those three things? Yeah, th- thanks. That's a, that's very much an oversimplification of it. And I, I knew that point when, when I was going in, but uh, Klausowitz actually does make a big deal about this uh, concept. The, but the point that he's making is that you don't necessarily have to go out and thrash your enemy over in a, in a major engagement of some sort in order to prevail strategically. 
So, I mean, that's he. I mean, he puts a lot of effort into talking about that stuff. He he assures us that that, that is the swiftest and most direct route to victory. But it's not the only one, especially if you're the weaker party, uh, which China which China still sees itself at. So that being the case, if you if you are the weaker power and you want to prevail, which we all do, which we all do, whether we're stronger or not, you still have options. You can try to you can try to, for example, try to dishearten your opponent, try to try to convince your adversary that he cannot win uh, at a cost that's available to him. Which which bridges into the site to the third uh, thing that you mentioned, which is would be uh, it it refers to Clausewitz's idea about the value of the object. Basically, the idea basically the idea being that how much I value my political goals determines how much I put in, into that effort in terms of resources and for how long. That's that that develops the or generates the overall price tag for a venture. So, the basic the basic logic from China's standpoint would be. Uh, the, they would try to do things to lengthen out, lengthen out an engagement in the Western Hemisphere, or the Western Hemisphere, the Western Pacific, uh, and thus raise the cost to the United States that way. Or do things to, to raise the cost directly to the United States, such as conducting missile strikes, perhaps taking aircraft carriers or other major platforms out of the uh, out of the fleet, doing all those things that would that would raise the cost to the United States. Clausewitz would tell us that if they can do that, if they can, if they can raise the cost directly, and if they can if they can uh, lengthen the lengthen the encounter, ultimately the, uh, Washington, President Trump, whoever sitting in the in the Oval Office at the time, uh, may not be willing to pay that price. And at that point, if if uh, we don't opt to pay the price, then China wins by default. So that's that's a very uh, short discussion of a very uh, a very big piece of Clausewitzian theory. But uh, yeah, but he's basically just pointing out that they can, they might raise the price beyond which we are willing to pay. And I think that's uh, I think that's that's the major point behind access denial and area denial. Uh, Jim, your article then goes on to talk about Chairman Mao and and uh, active defense, uh, and then you uh, you bring in the analogy of uh, Muhammad Ali, particularly in uh, 1974 in the Rumble in the Jungle against uh, George Foreman. Uh, and and I, I love those two images. You know, you, you have quotes about how. Uh, Chairman Mao uh, leading in the revolution, uh, using this idea that um, the strategic concept of active defense in the es- is the essence of, uh, Ch- of Chinese military strategic thought, and that PLA forces are not going to try to pr- protect a, defense t- a, f- a fixed defensive perimeter, um, but they'll stage a fighting retreat. In other words, they're going to they're going to engage, but then they'll move back that, you know, that idea of a crumple zone and inflict cost on the enemy and stretch the enemy out to the point where he, he becomes too thin uh, and too weak and, and then hit back hard. And then I also loved, I mean, it, it's a, it's a bit gruesome, but the Mao quote um, that, uh, you know, Mao told his red army commanders uh, to lure the, uh, the stronger enemy forces in deep and annihilate them bit by bit. Uh, and you said, uh, you quote, injuring all of a man's 10 fingers is not as effective as chopping off one or as routing 10, div- 10 enemy divisions is not as effective as annihilating one of them. Uh, and you know that's that's pretty strong imagery. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty grisly stuff. Yeah, it's a, I mean that's the I mean this is and this is I think this is uh, just encoded in China's way of war at this point. I mean this is a, bear in mind that uh, Mao, yes, a good, good strategist. There's a reason that we study him in Newport and places like it. But uh, but he's also he's also a founding figure in China in China's communist regime and uh, and thus and thus what he did uh, in the in the battle against the nationalists back all the way back to the 20s and then uh, fighting against the Japanese. I mean these are these are founding legends for. 
China. And, uh, and thus, I think the I think this concept is really really ingrained in Chinese strategic culture. But yeah, I mean, it's the it's the, it, it is the same idea. I mean, the yeah, strategic retreat is a good thing. It's like the it's to go back to the mount. And it's I, I wish I could I wish I could establish a connection between the two things that you mentioned. I don't I doubt it exists, but it sure would be neat to know that whether Muhammad Ali actually was familiar with Maoist uh, with with Maoist theory. I mean, they, they were contemporaries, and what the, and what the Ali did to George Foreman, who everybody thought was gonna was gonna win the bout in Zaire because he was bigger, he was stronger. I mean, all all these by by every metric uh, imaginable, it looked like he was gonna win. But Ali basically did the Maoist thing. He fell back. He did just enough to he did just enough in the early rounds to to uh, keep uh, Foreman interesting. Or keep keep Foreman interested in the bout, but ultimately by the later rounds, Foreman has worn himself out. He has been unwisely squandered his energy. Muhammad Ali is, is still fresh, and ultimately the, the weaker party actually turns the tables, and he actually he actually wins that uh, wins that bout. Very much like Mao's idea of how how the Red Army and then the PLA should do things: fall back, let your adversary overextend, and start exhausting himself. Uh, trust that his uh, his uh, discipline as he as he as he comes on is going to fail, so the so that uh, forces start getting uh, out of out of order, getting remote from uh, mutual support from one another. And if they do that, at that point, the weaker party can surround them, isolate them, and again to cut the cut cut the enemy's fingers off one by one by annihilating individual units. Very, uh, very, uh, so again, I think that's something that is embedded in Chinese culture, and they've told us that time and time again. I'm going to jump back earlier in the article. You you make the point that Chinese sea power is more than the PLA Navy, and this is where you get into this whole idea about uh, terrestrial uh, land-based forces that project power out over the sea, right? So it's, it's not just the... Chinese aircraft carrier. It's not. It's not even the Chinese aircraft carrier or cruisers or or uh, destroyers. You know, we're talking about uh, land-based anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, ballistic missiles that can that can target ships at sea, carriers at sea, uh, aircraft that are land-based that carry anti-ship cruise missiles, uh, coastal defense. Uh, you know, essentially. Um, uh, Patrol coastal ships. Yeah, what, carry. Cause what were those ships? Because we were talking about them vis-a-vis the LCS, and they have oh, the little Hobeys. Yeah, the, yeah, the Hobeys. Where they yeah. built yeah, yeah. orders of magnitude more than we right. have. The right? eight, the eighty Hobeys. Yes. They have yes. com- right for fifty or sixty million dollars a copy. Right. Uh, with anti-ship cruise missiles that can reach out sixty to hundred miles and uh, and pack a si- significant punch. You know, r- run out to sea launch missiles, and, and run back. I mean, that's almost uh, the poster child for the difference between the two fleets' approaches to, you know, procurement, rapid procurement, but also uh, creating a ship for a very expressed purpose. Yeah, right, right. Well, you know, right. you know uh, Wayne Hughes out at uh, PG School, whom I'm, I'm sure you guys know because uh, because he's an institution. But he's uh, he's been he's been calling for a force of what he and he, and he basically wants to to imitate and, and follow the Chinese lead in that sense and build a large force of uh, of uh, small craft like you know 500 ton type things. And if, in fact, he goes he calls them ninjas. He goes so and he goes so far as to say that we shouldn't ever plan to to do a major overhaul on one. Let's just buy it for a hundred million dollars a copy, use it till it wears out, and then buy something better. So. Well, I 
think that was Sabrowski's original intent with with yeah. with Street, street Fighter. Fighter. Yeah, but back to Street yeah. Fighter. Back yeah. to Street Fighter. Yeah, and and LCS grew out of that literally. Well, the machine literally. just has a way of having this mission creep with requirements and cost and yeah over yeah. budget and behind schedule. It's kind of what our yeah. what we do best. You know, as right? I, I was actually away from Newport for about a decade doing other things. When I was we we I taught at the University of Georgia, went to grad school, did all that kind of stuff. So I came back I came back to Newport to, to meet with some people here one time, and I said something about Street Fighter and how cool I thought that was. And they it looked my my uh, my friend looked like I had shot him. I, I think that became that became persona non grata at some point around the turn of the century. Yeah, really fascinating. No, absolutely. Jim, talk because because I, I wasn't familiar with uh, I think you pronounced it Aub, uh, Admiral Aub, mm-hmm. the, the French admiral, 19th century school of uh, uh, head of the school of naval strategy called the Jeune Ecole or the Young School, mm-hmm. uh, which was um, in, in in opposition to the you know Great Britain's Royal Navy, which was a serious blue water navy, and at the time the French couldn't really afford a blue water navy, and they so they they, they had this young school, the Junicole, and they they developed a strategy to keep at bay uh, the Royal Navy uh, and and to offset it using a smaller um, a, a different technology that was. Uh, uh, you know, the pack to punch in close to the to the to the French coast. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. I mean, the, the Junicola, it's, it's an Admiral Lope. I mean, he's, he's not a, in fact, the, the picture that I dropped in the article is literally the only one you can find online. So he's, he's, he's on the obscure side of these days. But uh, he was certainly one of the forefathers of, the, of this idea that if all I do, is, if all I care about, if I'm a land power like France, which is facing off against the Blue Water Navy, like the, like the Royal Navy, which, of course, rules the waves uh, across the globe for the most part in the, in the late 19th century. But if I want to keep that Navy away from my shores and that's all I want to do, then the advance of technology by the 1870s and, and of course, into the 20th century is such that you can actually do that using a, using a multitude of light, inexpensive platforms armed mainly with torpedoes, which were becoming a thing by the turn of the century. So that's that's basically, the, in a nutshell, the idea behind the Je ne the platforms that would have carried it out back in back in his day would have been things like uh, again small torpedo boats, distant ancestors of the Hobe and the other things we were just talking about, uh, or submarines. Of course, were starting to become a thing as well, and those and those could carry torpedoes. They could lay mines. They could do all that kind of thing. So, basically, the, the, the basic idea was: no, you're not going to go out and defeat the Royal Navy or its successor using this sort of strategy. But you can keep it at a distance. You can abridge its freedom of movement. Keep it away from your shores. And if you can do that, if you can keep uh, if you can keep that that navy from uh, uh, from coming in, he's not going to be able to bombard your shores, land land troops, or whatever navies like to do after uh, uh, after they win command of the sea. So, for a, for a country like France that didn't really need to take on the, on the Royal Navy Navy across the globe, it was it was a perfect solution. And, and key to your point, there is land power versus naval power, right? So, you know, China on the uh, Eurasian landmass uh, is is a significant land power. Uh, constrained by geography, by that you know first and second island chains, uh, you know if you look out, not as constrained as as maybe uh, Russia is in terms of access to blue water, uh, but that you know the Chinese Navy is constrained. The South China Sea is ringed by Malaysia, Indonesia, you know several different straits, uh, the Philippines, uh, Taiwan, uh, Japan, etc. Uh, and so it's its access to the blue water, its access into the Central Pacific is constrained. Uh, but perhaps they don't need, uh, you know, using the French the French example there, uh, using asymmetric technologies, uh, they can control that that uh, the you know the, the nearshore waters to them, 
uh, keep us out uh, or, or make it expensive, as you pointed out earlier, using the Klaus Witzius term, make it, make it very expensive uh, for, the, for the U.S. Navy and, and allied navies uh, to come inside that first island chain and project power. Uh, that, that's a very interesting uh, juxtaposition there. Yeah, and of course, and of course, uh, technology has given new life to the idea simply because technology can reach out from very, for very far distances in a way that uh, Admiral Obe could only have dreamed of. I mean, his what was the range of a torpedo in eighteen eight in eighteen eighty or nineteen hundred? A, a very short range. For example, if the uh, the Japanese when they went up against the Russians at Port Arthur in nineteen oh four had to get to knife fight range, that's not the case anymore. Especially when you factor anti ship missiles that are carried by these platforms uh, into the bargain. I mean, the, the Chinese are now. Foot, fielding an anti-ship missile with a range of 290 nautical miles. So that's obviously a very, a very uh, uh, hyper-extended ver- version of what the Je Nicole people saw. And it's, it, may, it, it means that they can hope to influence events much further from their own shores as, as, uh, than the French could or any other co- access to Nile power could have back in the, back in the 19th century. The, uh, if, if, if I could just go back just for a second and just reemphasize, you, say, you said it very well, but I want to reemphasize that because what you said was actually the prime takeaway I would, I would take out of this discussion, and that's that uh, sea power is not, no longer just a thing for navies. I mean, if you, if you think about or if you look at any, any scenario that might happen in the Western Pacific or really anywhere, the what is going to decide what happens in a fight at that point is how much how much firepower each side can concentrate on the engagement, and it doesn't matter whether that uh, that firepower comes is launched from a ship, from an airplane, from uh, from shore, or anything else. So uh, sea power sea power is very much a matter for land forces these days, and I think that's only going to that's only going to uh, that's only going to continue as anti ship ballistic missiles and whatnot uh, come into the mix. So with all of this in mind. This week, as we were talking about at the outset, uh, when we're talking about our uh, my my port call in Singapore, what are the Chinese? You know, they're sort of the the presence behind the scenes of the summit. What are the Chinese looking for, wary of, hopeful for, with respect to this summit? Uh, well, I mean, it, as far as the immediate goals of the summit, there's a, there's an enormous amount of commentary out there right now, and you can take that you know you can take that as as you choose. I, I think, if, but if you relate this to a naval context, I think the the big long term concerns that China has are basically geographic and geographic in nature. If you if you pull out your map uh, and look and look at your map of Northeast Asia, uh, the Korean Peninsula overshadows the the waterways the waterways the sea lines of communication going into a Chinese special special economic zone, including Tianjin, the the Maritime Gateway to Beijing. I mean, there's an enormous amount of economic activity that goes on around the Bohai Sea, which lies just to the west of just just to the west of the Korean Peninsula. So. Just in basic, just in basic terms, they would they would like to manage what happens on the peninsula because if you think about it, if uh, Korea were to unify and if it were to unify under the South, which is the most likely probability, that would raise the possibility of uh, hostile forces, meaning U.S. forces, being uh, astride those waterways and, and potentially uh, menacing shipping going into or out of going into or out of China, and especially out of those uh, container ports in, the, in North China. So, that, I think that's probably lurking in the backs of Chinese minds. Just, just simply the maritime geography of the region and the need to the need to try to keep hostile forces out of that uh, away from those sea lanes as much as possible. So that's a crumple zone that they would lose. To use your your other metaphor, 
Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, potentially, if you had a unified Korea that, that leaned towards the West, that leaned towards the United States, I mean, you could actually see a, a threat to shipping along the Korean West Coast that's uh, on a magnitude that you don't see right now. Jim, I, I, we as a staff loved reading your, your article. Uh, one of my later tours uh, in the Navy was uh, I led the China uh, analysis team at the Joint Intelligence Center in the Pacific. And uh, I, I, when I first read your article, the, the faces of Chinese sea power, that you know how to visualize it, I, I wished I had had this uh, for you know new officers and, and new uh, intelligence specialists coming to my team in uh, 2008 to 2010 timeframe. In terms of, it's just a very powerful article that helps. You know, I, I think especially anybody, but especially young people who maybe aren't that familiar with the you know Chinese military buildup and modernization, the types of systems that they're building. Uh, it, you know, the takeaways are strong. You can you can uh, you know you can read this and you can take away. Okay, I, I can see this crumpled zone. So as U.S. forces or other forces were to approach China from the Central Pacific, it's going to get harder. It's going to get tougher as we get closer. It's you know the defenses are going to get stronger, uh, and then I can read you know some of the the thinking uh, of Chairman Mao. I can read how Clausewitz those ideas would apply at sea. I can read how uh, the you know the French you know that land power responded to Brit Britain's overwhelming uh, Royal Navy power. I can read about Muhammad Ali and the rumble in the jungle and how uh, a, a, a a maybe faster, more agile, but weaker opponent can can wear out uh, over time and then counterpunch uh, hard against a, a bigger opponent. Uh, and so this is just a just a powerful piece. And uh, for all our readers out there, recommend it to you. Uh, it, it will help you understand what's going on out in the Western Pacific. It will help you understand China's thinking and how it's building its military forces today, uh, and it's uh, particularly its naval power, uh, not just its navy, but its naval power, as Jim has mentioned here. Uh, and I wanted to just make a plug. I think, Jim, you've been invited to be uh, either a speaker or a panelist or a, or a uh, a moderator at the upcoming um, symposium that we're going to run here in October at the Naval Academy, the Naval Institute, the Naval Academy uh, put put on every year a, uh, a naval history conference. This year, the focus is going to be on China. Uh, have you gotten the invitation yet? I, I know that we talked about uh, inviting you to be uh, be a part of that. No, I think you guys are snubbing me. I still haven't heard from you guys. I think, I, I think <laughs> I'm, I'm starting to wonder about your veracity there. Oh, we don't have anything to do with that. I'm losing credibility then. Now, our our uh, our it's conferences, happening. our conferences, folks have have talked to us. They often do ask about you know proceedings authors who might be uh, uh, particularly good in uh, in an upcoming conference. The invitation uh, is in the mail, Jim. Yeah, it's be it's, of good cheer. It's in the mail. Uh, so we're we're looking you know, forward to we're looking forward to getting you down here to Annapolis in uh, in October for that uh, that conference. Oh, absolutely. They, uh, actually, you said something really powerful. I mean, you, you were talking about the audiences for which this uh, thing is intended. I, I think there's a more general point. I mean, it's yes, I, yes, I, and in fact, I, for whatever reason, I've uh, I've been trying to reach out more to younger people, but especially, but really, just to non-specialists. I mean, even even people who sit in Congress. These are not these are not people who uh, most of them with military or naval service. I mean, we all, it behooves all of us to try to explain ourselves very clearly and simply to people who do not specialize in this this kind of stuff, because otherwise uh, otherwise we might uh, we might fail to to get popular popular support for something that really needs to be done at sea. We might not get the platforms uh, from Congress that we need. I mean, there's it just behooves everybody.
everybody, everybody who wears a uniform or uh, serves in a civilian capacity within the Navy or just as interested in naval affairs to try to get good at be, not only being an ambassador, but really just uh, ex- explaining themselves. And I think that uh, the more that we can all do that, uh, the better off we will be as a country. Admiral Wiley, whose uh, whose name I bear on the on, on my chair of maritime strategy, wrote a book here in the 1950s in Newport because he was worried the United States Navy was going to actually lose its shirt in the battle over unification of the services. It was basically going to lose that to the U.S. Air Force, and part of that was because the Navy did not have, know how to explain itself uh, very well in Congress in strategic terms, and thus we were uh, we were just having a hard time uh, fight, fighting it out with the Air Force for resources and, and platforms and so forth. So I hope that uh, I hope that we will get good at that and uh, and uh, put 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 Admiral Wiley's uh, soul at ease as he as he lies up in Middletown here on Aquidneck well, Island. Well, that's a very good point. Uh, Ward and I were both at the Surface Navy Association uh, conference in uh, Crystal City back in January. It's the, the annual SNA oh, right, Association, yeah. and and at that uh, um, two day event. Uh, Congressman, I think it was Congressman Whitman, um, was uh, mm-hmm. was a speaker, Virginia, and, right. and he from Virginia, right? And he gets sea power. His uh, his district uh, is very much involved uh, in sea power and building sea power. But he made the point, um, you know, sort of took the Navy to task because there has been a, a, a tendency towards, you know, wanting to be very careful about what people say, right? And so that has had a chilling effect on naval officers writing, uh, speaking about naval power. And, and, and Congressman Whitman said, you know, I get it, loose lips sink ships, that's true, but uh, the lack of good strategic communications sinks navies. And he was making the point that, hey, Navy, if you don't make your point about the importance of sea power, about the importance of the Navy to the nation's security, to the nation's commerce, uh, you're going to lose your Navy, right? It's it's particularly now that um, fewer and fewer acting, you know, active congressmen and, and senators have served in the military, so they they don't get it as much, and you know, members of their staff aren't as, you know, sort of intrinsically clued in to things like what you're writing here about, you know, the, the what what sea power, what naval power really is, what it means, uh, how you project it, uh, the importance that it has, the, the geographic constraints that it has, the impact that it has on, you know, the trajectories of nations. So that's a, that's a really powerful point. Well, I mean, part of, part of it's just the nature of our system. I mean, we, we trust that squabbling among ourselves is actually a good thing. I mean, we, we tend to get to none of us knows everything. None of us, none of us has a monopoly on insight. But if we if we uh, if we basically fight it out, fight it out, uh, you know, in a war of ideas, then ultimately, hopefully, we'll get to a, to a better place than we than we would be when you have one person sitting in an office uh, typing on something. So that's a part of it. A part of it's just the nature of uh, our way of life, and I, it's something that I think we need to to be to be very mindful of and not try to shut down people from speaking their minds in public. Yes, we shouldn't be telling what, you know, when a ship's uh, leaving port or whatever the case may be, but uh, as far as bigger strategic things, there's there's no reason to shut that stuff down. Well, that's what the Naval Institute's for. Uh, and so, Professor Jim Holmes, thank you for using the Independent Forum in, in its intended purpose. The article is Visualize Chinese Sea Power. It's in the current issue of Proceedings Magazine. Thanks for joining us on the Proceedings Podcast today. You bet, guys. Thanks. Thanks, Jim. Out here. All right, everybody. Thanks. We'll see you next week for another uh, edition of the Proceedings Podcast. And remember, victory begins at the U.S. Naval Institute.